Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between the informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this episode, over the last few years, universal social protection and the government responses to the COVID-19 crisis has generated important debates in the field of social protection. The Universal Social Protection 2030 framework, for instance, has gained support from a variety of key social protection stakeholders, including national governments, the ILO, the IMF, the World Bank, and other UN agencies, as well as global civil society organizations. However, certain key principles and actions remain contested in practice at both the level of global financial institutions and within the rollout of schemes at national level, which highlighted the importance of the role of ideas. Much of the contestation over the desirable nature and the role of social protection has its roots in implicit assumptions underpinned by neoclassical economic theory, resulting in powerful policy ideas which counteract the key principles of universal social protection 2030 and ultimately undermine the extension of fair, equitable, and sustainable provision of social protection to informal workers. In order to unpack, shed light into these assumptions and help us understand these dominant ideas and actors behind it, we invited Florian Jürgens Grant. Florian leads at Puigo the project challenging the global orthodoxies which undermine universal social protection. Before joining Wigo, he worked on social protection for the ILO and HelpAge International. And without further ado, here is our talk with Florian Jürgens Grant. Florian Jürgens Grant, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Cyrus. Thanks for having me. Okay, Florian, let's dive in. So the project you are coordinating is called Challenging the Global Orthodoxies, which undermine universal social protection. Can you explain to us what do you mean by global orthodoxies and how do they relate to social protection and why do you think it's important to critically engage with them now? Thanks, Cyrus. I mean, first of all, what a great title for a project, you know, Challenging Global Orthodoxies. I, I remember when I first saw the, the title, I thought I really wanted to be part of this. That sounds incredible. I think as often, it's really helpful to start with COVID, you know, at the moment, the defining challenge that the world is facing. And during the pandemic, we've seen really how important social protection is. Millions of people lost their ability to work due to lockdowns, you know, the economic collapses and really suffered, um, you know, huge income losses. And in response to that, there's been a massive expansion of social protection in most countries, which is great. And there's a lot of excitement around that, or there has been a lot of excitement around the last couple of years, last two years. But we've also seen how inadequate that was, despite best efforts. But it's been, by and large, the social protection that was provided during the crisis was too little, too late, too short term, and has left most informal workers without much protection. And for me, highlighted both how far away we are from achieving universal social protection, so social protection for everybody who needs it throughout the life course, and the disastrous consequences of that. It has also reminded us that the biggest gaps in terms of achieving universal coverage of social protection, the biggest technical, ideological challenges are really around social protection for informal 
workers. That's one of the biggest gaps. And I think that's just the backstory. And I think it's interesting how that's kind of colliding with some of the rhetoric around universal social protection that we've been seeing over the last couple of years. And particularly with the sustainable development goals, there's been a real growing chorus of organizations that are very explicitly calling for universal social protection. And I think that's that's a real change from how it was a couple of years ago. And, you know, most prominently, we see now the, the ILO, but also the World Bank, which is, you know, the new development in a way, you know, leading a global advocacy coalition of governments, NGOs, civil society, including WeGo, that are very explicitly calling for the achievement of universal social protection by 20. 23, which is, you know, honestly, in a couple of years, really. Um, and, you know, but again, there's been this awareness, how this painful awareness, how inadequate coverage is and how far away we are from this goal. So as we go, we started to think about, like, why are we not making enough progress? You know, what is holding governments back from closing these coverage gaps? How is the social protection sector as a whole, you know, including us, including myself, maybe failing to achieve universal coverage? And clearly there has been a failure. There's been progress in the last couple of years and more generally, but still huge, huge gaps. So is it a lack of knowledge? Is it a lack of good practices being disseminated? Is it a lack of information or is it something else? And most of the time in the social protection sector, we tend to assume that the reasons we're not making enough progress, I think, are because there's lack of evidence. People just don't know. There's lack of technical guidance, practical toolkits and guidelines and how to expand coverage. Um, of course, there is an awareness of the politics of social protection as well, very much simplifying it right now. But we tend to take a very technical approach, I think, emphasizing capacity issues, evidence. And, you know, there's a general belief that with more and better information, people will implement, governments, stakeholders will implement better policies, they're more inclusive. And, you know, the, the real issue is knowledge and evidence and maybe know-how. What I really love about this project is that there's a slightly different approach that we take. And while not denying the, the previous points, they are essential, we do emphasize the power of dominant ideas. So this is an orthodoxy, in my view. And we do think that consciously or unconsciously that they impact the way people in power or important stakeholders on social protection, how they think about social protection. And sometimes these ideas are very obvious and we're aware of them. And sometimes they're not very articulated and they're kind of beneath the surface and people are not maybe quite aware of those, but they still have an impact. Just an example that you might be familiar with that the project isn't focusing on, and it's a much kind of an older one, but it's the, the Victorian idea of the deserving poor and the undeserving poor, that there are certain groups of people, often kind of the older people, persons with disabilities, children, um, that, have their, that should have social protection, whereas those that are seen as being able to work face a much harder time accessing social protection. So that's a, it's just an example of these ideas and how what a powerful impact they can have on how we all think about social protection. And this is the framing or the idea of the project that these dominant global orthodoxies, and we call them global orthodoxies because we think they have global power. They're not regional ideas that only relate to a certain region or a certain country, but rather they are global. And there are certain global institutions in the economic and development sphere, such as the World Bank, UN agencies, IMF, OECD, that they play a, a really important and outsized role in developing and disseminating these ideas. How social protection should look like, who should have it, how it should be financed, what, what conditions should there be. And yeah, in a nutshell, that's the idea behind this project, that these ideas, that they matter and that they're not often recognized, but they do, essentially, <laughs> we blame them to some extent for the lack of progress on achieving coverage. And what we try to do is 
flush them out a little bit, bring them into the open and make people aware of them, that they exist and that they're influential, and then try to develop a kind of a narrative that, that challenges them, but I think more importantly, presents a different view of social protection and one that we think is both more grounded in reality, particularly from a perspective of informal workers, but also can move us towards the realization of universal social protection. I think we're not implying that, you know, ideas are entirely kind of flowing top down. And, you know, I think a lot of those ideas that we're talking about are being, you know, very critically challenged at, at all levels, you know, global, regional, national, beneath that. It's, a, it's very much a simplification. I think what, what we're saying is, though, that these global orthodoxies, that they result in a way of power imbalances that, you know, that exist in, in the world, in the sector, and those global institutions have a lot of weight in how they promote these ideas. And that's why we focus on them. It's very interesting to see a, a project that takes the role of ideas seriously. Okay, so let's move on to the next one. You, you mentioned global orthodoxies, but what are the global orthodoxies that you have identified as the most important ones. Uh, can you explain how they hold the potential to undermine universal social protection? Yeah, no, gladly. Um, so there's three that we think are the main ones. There's many others, but these are the ones that we're focusing on for now. And I think part of what makes this project so interesting is that we're also discovering as we go along that there's others or there's maybe, maybe we didn't frame them perfectly when we first got started and we're like on a journey to understand these ideas a little bit better and how they interact with the world. Um, I'll start with the easiest. So the idea that you, I'm sure you're familiar with is the notion that spending on social protection is economically unproductive. You know, it's nice to have, it's obviously a good thing for many people, but it's not hard economics. It's not what you what you focus on when you face tough choices as a Ministry of Finance and you need to grow the economy. It's a bit kind of the, the soft side of development, but not like proper, you know, economic development. I think that this is an idea that that I think is quite prevalent still. And the the risk here, the power of this idea could mean that the money that we need for universal social protection, which we need more money than we currently have because we still have these coverage gaps and more needs to be invested in social protection. There's a risk if you see social protection not as economically productive, then these programs are open or particularly vulnerable to austerity uh, policies and fiscal consolidation that we're already seeing now in the tail end of COVID. And, you know, there's been a lot of studies lately that the IMF, you know, who was uh, generally quite supportive of government spending on social protection during the crisis, is now reverting back to austerity policies and telling governments that they need to rein in spending. And if you don't think social protection is an economic investment, it's going to be under a lot of pressure to, to be cut. At the same time, if you don't have a full understanding of the benefits of social protection, which are social or personal, you know, kind of human, but also economic, if you don't count those, there's a risk that governments not recognizing the full scope of benefits underinvest in social protection. Um, and, and that's obviously a big concern. And that's going against the evidence that we have. There's a growing evidence base that social protection services, healthcare, childcare, that they're really essential for inclusive economic growth and that social protection programs can really stimulate bottom-up growth and, and should be essential to the economic recovery from COVID. You know, we've seen it from our own surveys that, you know, poor informal workers around the world have seen huge hits in their earnings over the last two years, really. Um, we've seen how much people have borrowed. And I think there's, there's a fear that without investment in social protection that helps them get out of this slump, there's a risk that they'll be left behind and 
social protection, both in protecting people from the next crisis, but also getting over the current one is just essential. So that's the, that's the first idea, that spending is not economically productive. The next one is really concerned around financing of social protection and whether the financing models that we, quote unquote, have kind of come up with um, after World War II in Europe, whether they are relevant for today's world, particular low and middle income countries, and whether or not we essentially need to move on from social insurance. It was, it was nice the last you know, 100 years, but then that's no longer a relevant mechanism to expand coverage, um, they would argue. And the idea is that in informal labor markets, employer contributions are no longer viable financing mechanisms for social protection. So as you know, in formal employment, the burden to finance social protection is shared between the employer and the employee, and a certain percentage of your salary, of the worker's salary, is being contributed by both employer-employee to finance collectively the social protection benefits. And there are a lot of actors, the same, particularly the World Bank, who are arguing that that is no longer relevant for today's world. Um, uh, they would also argue it never really was relevant for most low- and middle-income countries, where the informal economy makes up a huge chunk of, of employment. They would argue the formal sector is too small, and you cannot. there's no employer in the informal economy, and therefore we cannot expect them to contribute to social protection. The implication then is that social protection has to be funded entirely through taxes. We have a number of concerns around that. On the one hand, it essentially lets powerful private sector actors off the hook. You know, there are large corporations, they benefit from informal work, they are employers in the informal economy, and we're essentially giving them a pass and say they don't have to contribute to social protection anymore. To make this work, you do have to re raise general taxes, and that will come largely, we fear, and I think as it is proposed, through aggressive direct taxes like a sales tax, a value-added tax that we know will hit informal workers or workers or anyone who isn't well-off disproportionately. So there's, there's a number of concerns, and not the least that social insurance is an important element of a social protection system, and just getting rid of it will leave a large gap in systems and might lead to a world where maybe the basic there's a basic safety net that is paid for by taxes, and then it's people's individual responsibility to privately insure themselves beyond that. And I think that's a vision of social protection that we certainly don't share, and I think a lot of informal workers will be be losers in that in that scenario. So a lot of money might be raised through these, but at the cost of increased inequality and um, potentially reducing workers' already low incomes. The idea here is that employer contributions, but really social insurance, just isn't isn't fit for the time anymore. It isn't appropriate um, for most countries that have highly informal labor markets. Another last one. <laughs> I've kept the well, the most complex one and maybe the most interesting one uh, for last. So the, this is the idea that social protection systems, which consist of both tax-financed social assistance and contribution-based social insurance. So one is the, the benefit that you get being a re resident or a citizen, and that is financed by general taxation. And one is like social insurance, like a pension or unemployment insurance that is very much traditionally tied to formal employment. Most social protection systems, essentially, I think all of them, uh, are a mix of the two. You know, there's different schemes that are interacting in a very complex way in most economies. However, proponents of this idea, of this orthodoxy, say that mixing the two will create essentially more informal employment. It incentivizes informality. 
And this is essentially because, as they claim, formal employment is taxed as workers and employers need to pay social security contributions. So a certain percentage of your salary uh, needs to go to, you know, a social security fund. And that's portrayed, you know, kind of by the World Bank and, and kind of affiliated organizations as a, as a tax on formal employment, whereas informal employment is subsidized. It's, it's made cheaper because now informal workers or, or really anyone outside the formal economy can benefit from free or subsidized services like healthcare. You know, you don't, quote unquote, have to pay for it. So that's why formal employment becomes more a better deal in a way for employers and workers. And the idea is that they kind of wake up in the morning and decide whether they take on formal or informal work. They weigh the cost and benefits, they do a little calculation, and then decide what type of employment they will take on. So that's the the idea that is behind this this orthodoxy. It's a very rational choice. There's no obstacles or barriers. You can just make a choice uh, about how you want to work. And similar to the the orthodoxies that I was talking about earlier, the the answer here is to avoid all of this, is to get rid of social insurance, replace it with a minimum safety net that is, again, financed by taxes, and private insurance. Kind of different ideas, but they are converging on similar policy prescriptions. I think the, the orthodoxy is problematic for a number of reasons. On the one hand, it rests on pretty pretty questionable assumptions and pretty pretty shaky evidence. There's a number of studies that claim to find these incentive effects, these effects that create more informal work, and we're looking at, into them right now. But like often, they just find like Mexico provided healthcare for I don't know 40 million people in 2008, and this one paper claims that the formal economy declined by one percentage point. So you know, even if it's the case, it's it might be worth it if you know a whole country has healthcare now. Um, but anyway, we're we're looking into this, and there'll be more more to come. And as I said, the assumption here is that this is a a free choice that people can decide which jobs they take, and there's no structural barriers or lack of formal work for that matter. And how does your project intend to challenge each of those orthodoxies? Um, a variety of, of, of strategies, really. Um, but, but generally, what I really love about it, that it gives us, you know, kind of time and, and resources to really think about these ideas, um, bring them to the surface, into dialogues. They exist, they have an impact, but they're not acknowledged or, you know, engaged with. We social protection people, I think we all like to get along, you know, a lot of people are friends. Um, and I think there's a focus on promoting good practices that align with your particular view of social protection, but really... We, do we explicitly acknowledge these kind of underlying ideas and orthodoxies? And, you know, we just hope that by talking about our good practices, we will kind of win the, the battle of good practices and the various options to expand social protection. You know, and those are different options. You know, I think the what I've talked about, I think it would give us more social protection. I think I would just argue it's not the, the right kind, the good kind. Um, but they're presented as kind of like neutral, kind of agnostic, um, technical differences and different approaches rather than being based on very different economic theories or visions for the futures and having very different winners and losers in a way. So our main strategies to respond are research, really. We want to build an alternative evidence base that we think is particularly more grounded in the reality of former workers, has a more nuanced understanding on informality. And what's, I think, fascinating is that a lot of those debates right now, they really center on the informal economy, on informal work. Um, as I said earlier, I think that's where the biggest kind of gap and the biggest challenge is. And that gives Uyghur a nice credibility and standing because there are the proposals made 
say, by the World Bank to expand social protection through, let's say, individual savings accounts. It's one of their proposals. It's really focused on the informal economy. That's kind of where lots of the slightly broad and maybe vague principles, they, that's where they hit, the rubber hits the ground. And it gives us a real opportunity to then to challenge those ideas because they're kind of on our turf. So we're doing a lot of research and we're doing a lot of alliance building with other civil society organizations. And then we try to take our ideas into the various policy fora that exists with the UN, with IMF, with the World Bank. We, we do have contacts with them and we try to get them to read our papers. And I think that's that's kind of the, the idea. So for instance, regarding the question that social protection is unproductive, regarding the idea that social protection is unproductive, we're working with some academics right now to simulate the economic benefits of increased social protection spending on informal workers. So how much growth are we are we giving up on by not investing in, in workers? So this is a question we want to answer with this kind of research. Um, we're also implementing a huge, I think, you know, very large survey of informal workers in, in Ghana, in Accra, to document that, you know, these informal workers already pay quite a quite some taxes and fees. You know, they're not a gold mine of untaxed workers that can be the one and only kind of source for more social protection spending, because in reality, they do pay a lot of taxes already. And I think that's an important message we want to take to policymakers that, okay, let's have a conversation about taxation and we do need more money <laughs> to finance all this social protection, but, you know, maybe it isn't here. And then finally, we're we're also, you know, I spoke about Mexico earlier, how the idea of this incentives that social protection can create, how that is, you know, comes from, from Mexico, from research that was done around the expansion of the healthcare program. And as I said, some of those studies find these like tiny impacts. And what we're doing is we'll, we'll, we'll essentially replicating some of those studies right now, because we have reasons to believe that they are, you know, big kind of conceptual and methodological challenges, how they understand informality and how they, how they go about, you know, identifying these, these, these impacts. Um, so yeah, it's really it's 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 a bunch of really exciting research um, that you'll hear more about in the coming months. Excellent. So let's move on to a more recent topic. These past two years and counting, we we have been facing a, a global pandemic. How has the pandemic challenged the way these policy areas are being used and received? I mean, I think. Especially in the early days, you know, there was a, I think, a sense that all certainties that we've had for so long, that they were no longer relevant. You know, everything was up in the air. Business as usual wasn't going to do it. You know, just think about most countries, but particularly the rich ones. But, you know, I think generally most have spent, you know, astronomical amounts of money to keep businesses afloat, to essentially pay people's wages for months in some countries. The U.S. introduced a universal child grant, which, you know, I, I never would have thought uh, I'll see. There was a lot of hope, I hope there still is, for kind of a new, maybe a new social contract to come out of the pandemic, you know, that centers around you know, care and justice and recognizes, you know, what we kind of, at least in the U.K., would kind of call essential workers, you know, those who've kind of kept us alive, fed us and cared for us uh, during the pandemic. And I think that was kind of an interesting moment. I think what's concerning for, for many is how quickly we're reverting back to some of the old well, orthodoxies. Book about the, the, the IMF's return to austerity that lots, lots of you know, analysts claim is, is happening. The World Bank's push for social protection you know, has a lot of elements of privatization in there. You know, they're still very critical of regulation. So we, maybe there was a bit of a, 
a moment, but there's a risk that we're, we're reverting back to where we were before the crisis. And that's something so society just simply has to, I think, push back against. That's just going to be the challenge in the next couple of years. And hopefully our project can contribute to that with some evidence and some language. On a maybe more hopeful note, I do think social protection is seen differently after the pandemic. And even those, I think, who weren't on board before, I think they've realized that societies simply just need to have protective systems for their citizens, residents, people. This isn't going to be the last pandemic. Climate crisis is accelerating. We can no longer afford, or we probably could never, but certainly can no longer afford to not have systems in place to protect people from the, the large-scale shocks, but also obviously the, the individual ones. So I think there's a realization that these are critical infrastructure, critical systems, social protection. So I think maybe what's changed is less so that we're having a debate about social protection, yes or no, or maybe even universal social protection, but rather around what that should look like. How are the financial burdens distributed uh, between the rich and the poor, between workers and capital, um, uh, between different generations, maybe even? Are we pulling risk collectively or is this something you, every individual has to bear? You know, is this a private responsibility or a collective one? I do, I do think we'll see more social protection, I hope coming out of the crisis but i think that the question is what kind and will it serve the working poor well or not and who will benefit from that so i'm not sure how that changes the orthodoxies but i think it changes the conversation around social protection towards less so whether we should have it more and towards well, what should it look like and, and who should pay for it absolutely so one thing that you mentioned now, and, and it's present in the title of your project, is the concept of universal social protection. So it seems a key concept to this project. Many of the organizations that champion those orthodoxies you want to challenge claim that they are advocating for universal social protection. How, how do you explain these apparent contradiction yeah i know it's it's exhausting um no i think it's it's both a sign of progress but also maybe making our lives a little bit more difficult on the one hand i think social protection is as i said being looked at differently i think as a result of the crisis and i do think generally that let's say actors like the world bank that maybe had a more narrow targeted approach towards safety nets i think you know generally wants to expand social protection systems there's broader efforts towards systems development you know including care and expanding coverage to informal workers whether we like the way they propose it or not but i think there is a broader view towards universality but on the other hand i think it's also quite clear that we're not talking about the same concepts really it's a little bit like the ubi universal basic income conversations you know like there's vastly different proposals being kind of grouped under the same headline and you know they can mean completely different things and it's sometimes difficult to know what people are talking about there's no copyright on universal social protection you know it can mean you sometimes see people doing what they've been doing before and calling it universal social protections there aren't very many rigid criteria applied to it and particularly when you can talk about progressive realization so you can say we, we we're doing a more narrow approach of social protection right now but this is with a view towards achieving universality in the future which makes it even more complicated. So when we talk about versus social protection as we go, we think about a system of rights and entitlements, um, like some kind of solidarity, risk sharing, progressive financing, whereas other models, you know, I think are much more around a collectively financed safety net through taxes and then more kind of individual responsibilities. So they, they probably both could get us to a sense of universality in a sense that social protection 
will be available in some form to more people or maybe all people. But I think they would have drastically different implications for people's actual ability to access them, what kind of benefits they would get, you know, who pays for it. So they might be universal in some sense, but not not in the real world. And the benefits that people might receive might not be adequate. So it's it's a similar issue, I think, throughout the project that these we really need to understand these terms and really drill down on them and what, what exactly they mean and understand what the consequences are of different proposals. I think the the general move towards the term universal social protection is both, I think, a sign of progress, but it also, I think, allows lots of social protection work to continue that I don't think should be called universal social protection, but it gives it kind of cover in a way. So let's wrap up now and what are the next steps of this research project so we're currently in a research generation evidence generation phase where i'm constantly talking to brilliant professors all around the world and we're you know we're engaging them to to write studies for us and we do case studies with with everybody you know there's a there's a generation of evidence um which hopefully around September, October, November, we'll have, you know, most of those ready. And we're then kind of gradually transitioning into a more of a, you know, engagement advocacy phase to try to change some policymakers' minds. And we'll be producing reports and briefs and developing joint statements with partners and advocacy coalitions, organizing webinars, and really just like taking our evidence to whoever wants to <laughs> wants to listen to us. Yeah, you'll hear you'll hear more from us. Um, hopefully, not just myself, but also other colleagues. Yeah, we'll be we'll be knocking on doors with our papers and trying to get people to to listen to us and hopefully change their minds a little bit. Excellent, Florian Jürgens Grant. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Want to learn more about the challenge in the Global Orthodoxies project and about these dominant ideas that shape social protection policies around the globe, we will leave some links at the description of the episode. And don't forget to follow WeGo in our social media channels, Twitter and Facebook to get the most updated publications and events about this project and more. I am Sirius Afshar and this was the WeGo's Informoikani podcast, Social Protection. See you next time.